This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity um, in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. The global mission of the Jim Crow South, Southern Baptist missionaries and the shaping of Latin American evangelicalism, written by Joao Chavez and published by Mercer University Press in 2022, explores the first hundred years of Southern Baptist missionary activity in Brazil to reveal how the racialized practices of Southern Baptist convention missionaries the largest Latin America country shaped aspects of Latin American evangelicalism in general and the Brazilian Baptist Convention in particular. Working with both English and Portuguese primary sources, um, Joao reveals how Baptists from the United States brought Christian faith that was very much entangled with white supremacy and racism, one that would take root in Brazil and gave rise the theopolitical project with lasting effects. Although Latin American evangelicalism is a diverse movement both in its Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal manifestations, historians have tended to overlook the power of the United States evangelicalism in the, in the establishment and maintenance of the evangelicalism in the region, preferring to offer sharp distinctions between the U.S.-based evangelical movement and the Latin American evangelicals. Joao's work recognizes that such distinctions may explain cases in which differences between U.S. and Latin American evangelicalisms exist, but argues that a hemispheric evangelicalism overdetermined by the commitment of the U.S. to Southern evangelicals has broader explanatory power. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important work how it sets out to make a significant historical contribution to how we view Latin American evangelicalism, 
and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Joao Chavez, the author of The Global Mission of the Jim Crow South, Southern Baptist Missionaries, and the Shaping of Latin American Evangelicalism. To share with you um, uh, and to introduce our author, Joao Chavez is Associate Director for Programming at the Hispanic Theological Initiative at Princeton Theological Seminary. Dr. Chavez wears many hats as he serves as a unit chair for Latinx religions at the AAR Southwest Editorial Board of Perspectives in Religious Studies, co-director of the Baptist Scholars International Roundtable, and the associate editor of Perspectivas, the journal of the HTI. He is also a member of the Commission on Racial, Gender, and the Economic Justice of the Baptist World Alliance. Draws research covers on a wide range of topics such as Latin American and Latinx religious history, liberation theology, Christian missions, post-colonial and decolonial thought, Latinx diaspora, and race and religion in the United States. A native of Brazil, Joao has presented and published his research broadly both in English and Portuguese. His academic articles were published by peer-reviewed journals such as the International Journal of Latin American Religions, the Journal of Reformed Theology, Political Theology, Perspectives in Religious Studies, and Baptist History and Heritage Journal. And to feature just a few of his publications, he has written Evangelicals and Liberation Revisited, published by Whiff and Stock in 2013. Um, now this title is translated from the English, uh, from the Portuguese uh, title, and it is Racism in Brazilian Baptist History, published by Novos Dialogos in 2020, and Migrational Religion, Context and Creativity in Latinx Diaspora, published by Baylor University Press in 2021. And it was in just last year, he published a journal article in the Journal of Political Theology titled, Remembering the Violence of My Ancestors, a Personal Academic Engagement with Erica Helgens, Religious Conflict in Brazil. Joao's work and passion also goes beyond the academia as he has also planted and led churches, taught college classes and managed business in the hospitality, food and construction industries over the past two decades. So welcome Joao to New Books in World Christianity and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. No, thank you Byung-ho for, for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the talk. Great, thank you. Um, as we begin, I would like to say congratulations, Joe, for publishing this excellent book. I believe that by the time our listeners tune into the podcast, um, they will be able have to able to have access to your book. Um, as I believe, I think the publication date is set for May second, twenty twenty two. And I also believe that this is also your fourth uh, monograph. Is that correct? Yeah, thank you very much. And yes, that that's that's the fourth one, and uh, and there's also right. The book is actually available now. They released it a little bit before schedule, um, you know. And it is, and again, in the as you mentioned, in the perspective in uh, in Baptist Identity series published by Mercer Press, and which now since a few weeks ago I have accepted being a co-editor to that series as well. So with Kate Hench. Um, so yes, uh, it's it's book is out. Thanks again. 
Well, congratulations, um, and another congratulations for you to be uh, be one of the editors in that series as well. Um, I think it'll be wonderful if we can begin our conversations today as well by getting to know you more, Joao. Um, and uh, could you share with us about your background, where you grew up, and where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field of study? And um, if I could also ask, please, um, share with us some of your influential mentors um, that have shaped uh, your academic work as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. I often use a, uh, a story that, uh, you know, uh, Ruben Alves, who's a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, as you might know, Byung, um, says they asked him how, how did he, uh, he was asked in an interview, how did he uh, get you know, to where he was. And he said, oh, I, I, I got to where I am today because everything I planned went wrong. And uh, I, I relate to that, you know, of course, it was not that in the same proportion, but nevertheless, you know, with the principle of the answer. Um, so I, I'm originally from Recife, uh, Brazil. I was born when the dictatorship was still in place there. And, and in Recife, it was... Uh, it was a, a kind of a, a place of uh, general resistance. There were some important figures who resisted the dictatorship, some in exile, um, others there, uh, folks like Paulo Freire, the father of critical pedagogies from Recife, Dom Helder Câmara, the progressive archbishop of Olinda in Recife as well, uh, whose influence in the region kind of loomed large when I was growing up, and they still do, even though they are not longer among us. So they were very early influences. And as a matter of fact, a high school history teacher who was Paulo Freire's, had been Paulo Freire's student, and of nurtured the interest that I had uh, in history in my early years. And then fast forward um, some time, I, I moved to the U.S., went to seminary. I have a seminary degree. Uh, I studied mostly the history of Christian thought in the 20th century with historical theologians while there. Uh, there was a true theological seminary at Baylor. But I felt drawn to all the methodologies like social history, sociology, that I think kind of help are more helpful in telling the histories of underrepresented groups than intellectual history. As you know, you know, archives are politicized, racialized, genderized, and all of that. So uh, intellectual histories, by the very nature of the methodology, tends often to favor some demography of others. Um, and, and again, so I, I wanted to remain, uh, you know, kind of um, developing my interest in training in history, but um, I, I felt like there were more adequate methodologies to do what I wanted to do. So I went to the religion department at Baylor uh, University and on the other side of campus, um, to, uh, to study the history of Christianity and, and it's also spent lots of time in the sociology department there. And then folks that I encountered there at Baylor were, were of course, some primary influences that helped shape my work. My advisor, Douglas Weaver, and his advisor, Bill Leonard, uh, both historians have been very influential and became friends, good friends uh, on the journey. Uh, sociologists that I encountered there, like Peter Berger, who had to do an appointment there, his former student, James Davison Hunter, Rodney Stark, um, I, were also very influential via their work, but also via other encounters we have in the classroom and in, you know, and, uh, in coffee shops and things like that. Um, historian Philip Jenkins, who's uh, 
one of the, the big proponents of global world Christianity, who was in my dissertation committee, very influential uh, for me as well. And those are the kind of the, the folks that I encountered there personally at Baylor in different settings. Um, and then beyond that, um, the, uh, the folks at the Hispanic Theological Initiative, I worked there, but I was a scholar. Uh, so I went many years to Princeton to uh, uh, for for HTI professional development conferences, and there we just I was just shaped beyond scholarship, but as a whole human being by scholars who are uh, continue to be friends and mentors in the journey. And here I think of Daniel Ramirez, Gaston Espinosa, Arlene Sanchez Wash, Elizabeth Conde Frazier, Margarita Benitez, Felipe Nojosa. Um, Justo Gonzalez as well, and, and um, who I've met not there at Princeton, but in other places, and of course, who is a, a very accomplished historian. Um, and also the usual suspects of world Christianity, right, who I did not meet personally, but whose work have been influential. Uh, I've met one of them personally, but n- not many personal interactions. Uh, but of course, their work dying here, folks who Know the literature will know their names very well, like Dana Robert, you know Andrew Walls, Lemming Senna. The list goes on. Um, but I also think the last thing I should mention is that I've been inspired and shaped by a younger generation of of scholars whose work are also deeply important to me. Folks like Tony Lin, whose book Latino uh, Prosperity Gospel Latinos is, is fantastic. Think of Tito Madrazo, his, also his book Predicadores, uh, is, uh, it, it has been, it's powerful work, and those are ethnographers, sociologist Jonathan Calvillo, historian Lloyd Barba, Erika Ramirez, also a sociologist, Jorge Juan Rodriguez, a historian as well, Malcolm Foley, another historian whose book's coming out soon, um, Tony Alonso, um, and, and many, many, I mean, I could just keep on going on. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are many influences that I had, some who had passed, uh, some who, who are just beginning in some kind of in the middle of their journeys. And I, have, I really was privileged to be exposed to these individuals. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity um, to share your journey and those that have been influential uh, in your academic life. Um, it is here, I would also like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this fascinating work, um, The Global Mission of the Jim Crow South, Southern Baptist Missionaries and the Shaping of Latin American Evangelicalism. Uh, where did this journey begin for you and what led you to writing this? And um, to be a little more uh, specific, what archives and source materials did you turn to and how was your writing experience overall in writing this book? So it really began, the, the, the trajectory here, I'll start again. <clears throat> so um, the journey really began, Byung-ho, um, as a teenager, joining both Christianity and, and the Baptist heritage and, or, or trajectory um, in Recife, Brazil. My, my parents were practicing Christians. I ended up going to this Baptist church. Um, and, um, you know, that was founded by Southern Baptist missionaries and, and whose pastors were trained under Southern Baptist missionaries in, in, in seminary. 
uh, and just trying to, you know, uh, it was very it was always a very fascinating dynamic for me. Um, but uh, so uh, that was um, I always uh, since very early on, kind of trying to understand the dynamics, uh, you know, both in micro and, and macro kind of. Uh, terms of whether church fit in a Brazilian society that was radically changing. Um, and, and so that never really kind of left my my heart in terms of interest of articulating a better understanding of that, which is a process that I think I'm still kind of a part of. Um, but we really began in terms of, you know, uh, putting pen to paper, so to speak, uh, as, as a kind of systematic project of trying to articulate some some uh, better understanding of that with my dissertation, but um, it, it was my dissertation was a two part dissertation. Um, one was a uh, I, I became very interested in as I became an immigrant to the U.S. Another interest that came alongside this this curiosity I had of understanding the the the, the history of the heritage uh, into which my own journey was grafted. Um, it was the you know this I, the, the, an understanding of immigrant churches, and I was in a history department, or a religion department, but but in a in a history of Christianity concentration, uh, and the ethnographic kind of approach that would be necessary to to study the immigrant churches that I wanted to study, uh, in the in the eyes of my uh, of my uh, mentors and uh, and of the department. Would not qualify as proper history. You know, that there was not enough archival uh, backing there to be that. That would be a sociology, ethnographic work. That's not what we do, and I understand that. Um, so, in retrospect, I really appreciate that because that pushed me to kind of write a part one uh, in which I of my dissertation that I could prove that I could do archival work. So then I could do what I then really wanted to do. Right, which was looking at the immigrant churches that did take ethnographic work, it did take interviews, it did take oral history, uh, and all of these other things. But originally, this was okay. I've done the archival part, so let me move on to what I really want to do now. Right, um, and then during the defense, uh, both Philip Jenkins and Raimundo Barreto, who is uh, so there at Princeton, um, and gave. Uh, and, and my my advisor, we, we had talked about this as well. The Weaver um, gave a, a, a very good, uh, you know, um, affirmation of the idea that this needed to be two books. You know, the second and I, the, the an expansion of the half about the immigrant churches became migration of religion, which came out last year with Baylor University Press, and then an expansion of the first half. Um, became uh, the global mission of the Jim Crow South. Um, so, so that was kind of of how it uh, it began. But another um, uh, another thing that happened as I was looking at both secondary sources and primary sources in terms of the history of of Baptists in Brazil, I noticed that uh, that there was almost two stories happening. One told by official denominational um, accounts that you see in, in, in denominational publications and 
and the history of, uh, you know, articulated by denominational historians and so on. And another one happening when you look at private missionary correspondence, um, and, and, and some inter- which includes interactions with locals as well. Right? So, um, so it's as if you have this official story that, uh, that either omits or gives a different spin on this other history happening, uh, you know, via the, the, this private, private freer exchanges, if, uh, uh, if uh, you know, I could put it that way. Um, so uh, that piqued my interest, and I felt like there was, you know, something to be said about that. And, of course, a big element of that is this idea of not only racial but also cultural superiority that kind of uh, enters the... the, the, the the very structures of many aspects of uh, Brazilian evangelicalism in general and the uh, Baptists in particular that I kind of try to tease out. Uh, and in terms of archives, um, I, um, I I saw then to do this well, I had to look at archives both in the U.S. and in Brazil, which I did. Um, and I'll mention a few that I, I mean, that the, the Texas collection and the Moody Library at Baylor University, there's some missionary correspondence and diaries there um, that, I, that I looked at. The Wright Library at Princeton Theological Seminary, there are periodicals in Portuguese um, that were very helpful. You know, and it's uh, the resources in terms of the study of Latin American Christianity at the Wright Library. I just amazing. I don't think they are praised enough. There's so, so much there. The International Mission Board archives, where the, the, the letters of the missionaries are officially housed, uh, was very helpful. So I, I scanned and got PDFs of thousands and thousands of pages of missionary uh, correspondence. I, 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 uh, I became very thankful for typewriters when they became a thing. Because those first few years, uh, you know, in the 19th century, you just can't make some of those when right. Don't know whether right. You, you know, uh, you, you might be familiar with this, but uh, anyway. So, uh, so I, I I read lots of those. Of course, the North Brazil, the South Brazil Baptist Theological Seminary had helpful resources. The Boyce Library, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, and then a, a, a scholar. Uh, who's a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Marconi Monteiro, he wrote his thesis on the radical movement um, in, in Brazil, and he had a number of documents that he had gotten from the families of missionaries. The correspondence of one missionary, D.L. Hamilton, for example, he got from his daughters, um, and, uh, and because of some tension between Hamilton and the FMB or the International Mission Board, some of his correspondence was not housed there. Um, so again, so he got it was a a good find to 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 get all those boxes in his garage, you know. And he let me kind of have them for so long. There's so much richness there. Uh, so those are some of the things that in the archives that I used. But but it was this kind of trajectory that was I didn't know it was going to become this book until later in the process. It was supposed to be, you know, just this. Okay, now let me do what I want. Uh, you know, thing. Let me do the, this. I'm interested in these immigrant churches. You know, um, we have connections to the mission, but but being being kind of pushed and challenged to do this um, made that project better, and also opened you know the possibility of exploring this other curiosity that I already had. 
when yeah. um, I got to revisit it. Of course. Excellent. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing those insights to this extraordinary book. Um, this really helps us to put into perspective the amount of research and investigation you know that goes into uh, writing such a great book. And thank you for sharing that. Um, now, taking a closer look at the book itself, um, if I may, it's, it, it is made up of five main chapters. Um, there's also an introduction and a conclusion. And by reading the introduction, it is hinted already that you will be taking a historical approach in unraveling this, uh, the complexities of the transnational growth of evangelicalism in both the U.S. and, and Brazil. And you emphasize that the aim of this project is to explore and connect these histories and to scrutinize, quote, an underexplored aspect of the genealogy of the global influence of the United States evangelicals, of which racial injustice is a major element, end quote. Uh, more specifically, your work draws attention to the context of Latin America and the history of the Southern Baptist missionary activity in Brazil with um, the Southern Baptist Convention at its center, and how, quote, the Southern Baptist Convention brand of U.S. evangelicalism influenced uh, Latin American pro Protestantism via missionary deployments of Christian whiteness, especially in Baptist circles, end quote. And at the, and at the same time, it is just as important to note that your work takes heed of the story and voices of the Brazilian Baptists as well. Here, I would like to invite you, Joao, if you could uh, start by talking a little more on some of the key elements that you think will be helpful for your, our listeners as we delve into your book. Um, in the introduction, do you have introduced some of your thoughts, some of your approaches, and what you want to accomplish? And here, please feel free to address other issues as well, but some of the underlining things that really stood out for me as a reader uh, were terms such as, you know, um, this big terms as evangelicalism, or um, you also refer to specifically hemispheric evangelicalism. Um, these words such as white supremacy, uh, Jim Crow South, and also there's layers of complexity. And within that, there's also issues of nationalism uh, or nationalistic tendencies, all terms that help us in a way, you know, locate context themes and time frames for your work that you seek to address. But Joao, please, you can refer to these terms as well, but also um, don't feel um, by, bound by these terms, but uh, please share um, some of your thoughts as well. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's an excellent question. Yeah, I mean, so we all write within, in the real world, right? We might be writing about the past, uh, by we I mean historians, but uh, scholars in general, but we are influenced by the context that surround us. And, and, and sometimes you want to address that, of course, uh, at the same time being, being faithful to the sources as much as possible. So, so this, your question kind of brings me back to the context in which this was written. I, I finished my dissertation in 2017. Um, so, um, and then I got some time to think about that uh, before I came back to, to expand the project into the book. And I come back to it in, in the reality of Trump and Bolsonaro. Um, and, um, 
and and a, a number of of um, of books that began to come out, and and, and interactions that are happening among between Brazil and the U.S. in terms of scholar inter inter interactions, the scholar among scholars, and I mentioned that in the introduction, some of those events, some of which I was a part, um, that it becomes really clear that the history that I was writing and I wasn't making a very strong connection to geopolitical um, kind of uh, concerns and, and, and realities provided a, a qualified genealogy for the strong support that the religious right or the Christian right um, has been given to certain figures like Trump and Bolsonaro, who is the you know, the, the Brazilian Trump, as people call it. Um, so it became really clear that again, a, a, a story that already uh, that already involved um, this uh, an assessment of uh, racial and co senses of racial and cultural superiority on the parts of missionaries helped explain some of the strong evangelical support that folks like Bolsonaro have been, had been getting. Um, uh, and, and here I point out to uh, an excellent book by Benjamin Cowan, Moral Majorities Across the Americas, that kind of tells that story from the dictatorship on. Um, I'm uh, giving, or at least I see this book being a, a tool that helps trace part of the genealogy that leads to that particular point. Uh, so all of that to say that the, the, the context in which I am writing the history or I'm revisiting uh, the first draft of it that was published as a dissertation um, now presents this as a possibility to articulate some of the connections, the early connections between um, evangelical Christianity in the U.S., its influence globally and its geopolitical outcomes um, and, and, um, and entanglements. And, and part of this, are, uh, there, there are many overlapping, overlapping themes that, uh, that kind of are part of Brazilian evangelicalism in great part because it was exported by U.S. evangelicals very successfully. And as I show in the book, in turn, because not only Brazil is the, the largest country in Latin America, but also because of the aggressive missionary efforts of Brazilians themselves, that U.S. evangelical um, kind of um, spirit then is exported to other countries via Brazilian missionary efforts. Uh, so this is kind of what I'm trying to show, uh, but I'm also, as you mentioned, these terms like evangelicalism, white supremacy, and others, I mean, there, there are books written about their definition, but whole books. They are content, contested terms. Um, and I do not enter in the, in the minutia of terminological uh, uh, um, complexities, although I understand their, their importance. Um, I rather want to... Um, say that the sharp distinctions that sometimes U.S. scholars make between evangelicals and evangelicals, um, meaning, you know, there is this white evangelicalism in the U.S. that is sharply different 
than the evangelicalism that expresses itself in Latin America. One, I, I want to say, well, in some cases, yes. Um, but in most cases, my argument goes, they are much closer than, than they are distinct. And this is partially because uh, uh, a uh, concerted effort on the part of white U.S. missionaries, most of them who, was, who were from the South, uh, to kind of implement certain control, um, and and in terms of uh, of and again I could go on on each of of those terms here. I'll just address directly one more. Beyond in terms of the issue of white supremacy, um, I also point in the book that what happens there is that that is, uh, you know, the um, the the. Um, the, the Southern missionaries or white Southern missionaries do not export racism to Brazil. It's already there, right? Uh, as uh, that that's in many ways uh, part of the the part of the colonial heritage. Uh, Brazil is already a white supremacist country. As a matter of fact, um, the, uh, the 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 sustainable phase of Baptist work began with Confederate immigrants right, who, who want to go to Brazil to reconstruct the Old South because Brazil remains a slaveholding country for 23 more years after the end of the war. So, um, so again, I mean, it's not, uh, uh, there is already a sense of, um, of white superiority in Brazil that has its structural um, the structural manifestations in Brazilian society, it is a little different, um, but but nevertheless. Um, and missionaries partner many times with locals um, in, in explicit or implicit partnerships in reinforcing, redeploying, and give, giving structural form to this um, sense of um, of white superiority and um, and 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 uh, white supremacy, and again, uh, this is a reality uh, that I want to show goes on until this day in many many uh, in many circles, and and missionaries have some role to play. I would say significant, some significant role to play yeah. in that dynamic. Thank you so much for that answer. And I'm, again, reminded of the first chapter, the introduction, how, you know, you lay out the reasons why we revisit the past is to better understand the current situation, right? I think that is kind of what you're trying to make in this book of, of understanding why things are, it is by revisiting the, revisiting the past, of under, revisiting the history. And, um, in continuation of, of this uh, previous question, I wanted to ask, and I think you've also briefly uh, mentioned this in, in the other questions that I've asked, is what is the gap you seek to kind of address or fill in uh, in the existing histories of Brazilian Baptists? And um, in a way, how do you envision your work uh, contributing to the world Christianity uh, scholarship? I think you mentioned this uh, in the first chapter briefly as well. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. So, the uh, in terms of of uh, Brazilian Baptists, the history of Brazilian Baptists have been, by and large, written by denominational historians who are committed and sometimes employed by the denomination. That limits what you can say. Um, at least in most 
not all, but in most denominations do. That is true of certainly of Brazilian Baptists. So again, what happens is, you know, we have many times missionaries writing these stories um, who are committed to the to the, the you know, Southern Baptist Convention and its legacies. Um, and you have, um, and again, I want to acknowledge that that that's, there are stories there, and some of whom have been uh, uh, very key to the development of world Christianity itself, right? The missionary kids and, and, and missionaries and former missionaries that have contributed greatly. Um, in the case of the, 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 the ones connected to the Brazilian Baptist Convention, uh, which are the ones that I look uh, closely, uh, the secondary sources they produce are very optimistic about their impact and their roles in local um, in, in local dynamics. And sometimes when you go only by the sources, at least in this particular history, I can tell about uh, about all of them. Uh, when, when you take missionary accounts as what really happened, quote unquote, right? Um, or as the only valid perspectives without looking closely at primary sources produced sometimes by the missionary themselves in another time of their life, sometimes by locals. Um, it, 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 you, you, I think that the perspective is, is diminished and it tends to be very romantic. Um, again, I am trying to, prov- in terms of, of, uh, of the histories of, of, of Brazilian Baptists, and I hope this book, there are some conversations already happening, will be translated to that audience. Um, it, it's um, uh, that that is it, it, that is another story to tell. There, if you look at the primary sources beyond what missionaries produced for Brazilians to read, um, there's a different story to tell there. Of again, um, racial injustice, uh, of um, of uh, senses of cultural superiority, and so on. And I reveal those in the book. Um, and in terms of, uh, of, of world Christianity, um, I, a couple of things that I hope this book does, and, and there are other examples there, so it's not necessarily uh, original in this regard, but I don't think there are enough examples still, although many others are being produced, of, um, of works that are, that are multilingual and, and that uh, hope to make a connection between these local expressions of Christianity, uh, but without the kind of, uh, uh, without relegating or without uh, just not paying attention to a kind of geopolitical cross-boundary, cross-boundary connections. You know, um, it's, uh, I think a lot of, or many of the contributions of World Christianity Scholarship is showing local expressions of Christianity, that is that, you know, Christianity uh, it's, uh, is a creative world religion in the sense that uh, it, it, it ex- escapes, uh, you know, a kind of prescribed cultural modes of missionaries who bring, you know, this uh, originally bring these forms there. There are many examples of that. Um, but there are also examples in which um, the colonial dispositions brought by missionaries are are very successful um, and, and then are exported by locals um, who might not come from the 
from the West, um, you know, uh, but but who have sometimes incorporated those dispositions, um, and and I and I think that uh, that that kind of qualifies a a an understandable uh, optimism that examples of local Christianities uh, in in the non-Western world kind of bring, um, b- you know, by saying in a way, okay, that th- those examples are true and they happen, but how representative are they? Uh, and and what are and what are kind of the geopolitical connections that they can that 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 uh, that we can show in terms of our research? Uh, not only in those cases in which Christianity does escape this this uh, more direct intentional form of colonialism, but uh, also in those in which it does not. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, I just wanted to 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 uh, to make a contribution in in that way. Actually, in, in, I, I I wanted to write the story. Um, right, I want to write this part of the story that that I think is very important, and it had not been written. Um, so I also think that it does contribute to the to the scholarship of world Christianity in this way, and also by connecting different bibliographies and literatures, right? Because I try to bring the history of U.S. evangelicalism, you know, with some dispositions and uh, uh, scholarship of world Christianity scholars into conversation as well that I think could be very helpful. And, and again, this is, is, has been happening uh, already in, in, in other ways by other scholars, and, and I just wanted to add my voice to that uh, particular trajectory. Thank you, Joao, for that thorough answer. Um, I think it really does contribute greatly um, to, uh, to the scholarship, um, especially in world Christianity as well. Um, now, from starting from chapter two, this is where you really um, go into the history um, uh, and and in retelling of, of the history uh, of the Southern Baptist missionary efforts in Brazil and also the Brazilian uh, Baptists as well. And um, in chapter two, it is interesting to learn how the beginnings of the Baptist Church in Latin America, specifically in Brazil, can be traced back to the immigrants I think you mentioned about uh, from the Southern United States, along with early Southern Baptist missionaries that were sent by the Foreign Missionary Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, Zhao, do you mind speaking a little more on this early history, especially in regards to the immigrants, as you've mentioned, that consisted of Confederate exiles um, and pioneering uh, Southern Baptist missionaries as well? and in my close reading of your book, I remember how they were instrumental in bringing with them, you know, this Southern religion um, and these Southern values, uh, notions of, you know, racial superiority, approval of slavery, and quote, um, the white supremacist God of the South, end quote. Um, and of course, as you mentioned, you know, this, uh, some, more, some form of this had already existed, but, um, you know, they're still bringing their um, uh, version of this as well. But what role did these immigrants and missionaries play in the uh, formations, early formations of these uh, Brazilian Baptists? Yeah, uh, I mean they've been they're, they're crucial um, in in uh, in their in their role. And again, I mentioned in the book also uh, that uh, although I think that they're and I just 
think is an important qualification. Although I um, I think that there are enough works written in both English and Portuguese that show some of the potential contributions of those missionaries to uh, to the development of Brazilian history and society, I wasn't going to focus on them. I'll focus on the story that wasn't told, which is part of this, again, um, white supremacist spirit or the spirit of Jim Crow that I that is a point in a uh, in the book and when I say something like and I'm paraphrasing here that you know the the that the sometimes is hard to distinguish bit you know from when the Holy Spirit acted and when the spirit of the Jim Crow South did, right? So it's like trying to complicate those notions. But um yeah so in terms of the early history is it is like like I mean that there is one attempt in 1860, to send a missionary, or a couple of missionaries, a missionary couple, I should say, to uh, to Brazil, um, who are uh, Thomas Bowen, who had been missionary in Nigeria. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention uh, seems to not be extremely happy with him because he is he is um, a little bit more progressive than they would like. But he doesn't speak Portuguese, but he speaks Yoruba. And lots of the a lot of the uh, the the African men and women who are kidnapped in Nigeria and 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 sent to Brazil as slaves speak Yoruba. Um, so Thomas Boeing arrives in Brazil and he starts preaching to the to the slaves because he speaks their language. Uh, he gets into trouble. The the police thinks that he's trying to uh, to, to to lead a a slave rebellion. Um, he upsets some folks in the, the the international mission board. He then ends up going back to the US. Um, and, and then there is a the, then the civil war comes in 1861, right? So I think part of the answer here kind of will illustrate how important it is to kind of see the connections happening on both countries at the same time, uh, which is something that sometimes to 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 go back to your previous question. Uh, scholars of old Christianity don't do it really well. Is as if, uh, you know, as an immigrant, and I think you might relate to this, Byung Ho. We live in on two worlds at the same time, right? Physically, we're here, but existentially, you know, uh, uh, kind of in terms of our imagination, our commitments, uh, we are in in two in two worlds. We pay attention to what's happening in the country in which we live, but we also pay close attention, you know, to the to the country, you know, where our family is, where you might go back to, where we are from, right? Uh, and um, and again, I try to trace it here. So the Civil War is going on, so there is a hiatus there. But after the Civil War, like I mentioned uh, a minute ago, we have thousands of Confederate exiles going to Brazil. And the First and the Second Baptist Church in Brazil um, are, are formed in the Confederate colonies, because what happens is that although uh, these Southern immigrants to Brazil want to reconstruct the Old South there, when they arrive, they see that it's a lot of racial mixing. Um, and there are some, uh, you know, that, 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 that Brazilian slaves can buy their freedom in 1870, you know, uh, that is the, 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 the law, is a lei do ventre livre, do ventre livre, the law of uh, the, the free womb. And now newborn, you know, black people are free. I mean, there are, you know, there are some, uh, 
there is a lot more racial mixing that they will be comfortable with. So they form, conf- uh, you know, Confederate enclaves. They form enclaves of white people only, so they can maintain a sense of almost white people only anyway. So they can maintain a sense of segregation that they are so fond of. And one of the reasons why they left their country, not the only, but one of them. Uh, and it is in those enclaves that that the first Baptist churches uh, begin. Um, and up um, to, to, to mention how much the influence of the Confederate South, uh, it's important. There's still to this day an annual party celebrating the Confederacy uh, in South Brazil in, where those uh, Confederate colonies were established. And, and from there, uh, the missionaries who come, um, the first one, uh, you know, to go to those colonies being William Buck Bagby and his wife, Anne Bagby. Uh, by the way, when I went to uh, Bell University, uh, the, the graduate uh, school housing is uh, part of it is on Bagby Street. Uh, you know, so it's very, very influential Baptists. A Baptist mission. So they go there. Um, he uh, again. He's uh, he's met by uh, when he goes visit. I uh, you know the the Confederate colonies. He's met by slaves. He meets his wife. Um, you know he's uh, uh, again. These are com- then Zachary Taylor goes after him with his wife, and then missionaries start going, and then they start kind of spreading out uh, and moving from the colonies and actually trying to to reach the locals. Uh, But they were committed to the the Confederate South and the Confederacy, and then the Jim Crow South after that. They are very keenly aware of the developments happening in the U.S., and most of them are mostly committed to them at the same time that they are living in Brazil trying to negotiate uh, the best strategies to reach the Brazilians. Um, so we have, up, t- up until the, 19- the late 1940s, early 1950s, missionaries who are still praising Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, um, you know, and, um, and all of those uh, Confederate heroes, and writing both in Portuguese and in English. Uh, and also uh, they are kind of feeding the Brazilian audience a translation of of uh, or uh, interpretation of uh, of uh, not only the history of the U.S. but also the history of Christianity. There is a missionary that I mentioned in the book that she compares. Uh, you know, she says David and Moses sinned, but Robert E. Lee was unblemished, right? Um, and uh, this, if if you if you want to be you know full with the Spirit, this is your model, Robert E. Lee. Uh, you know, he, he, he's going to be remembering the books of history as somebody who might lo- have lost the war, but he was, you know, a, a, a man of, of, of the greatest character. And I mean, he just praise Lee and others. Uh, so, so you see that and that those are some of the models that are being implemented there. But and at the same time, you have white Brazilians who are seen as uh, the ideal leaders of the denomination by missionaries sent to the segregated South. To study, and the reason why they are able to study in those seminaries is because they are white, um, and, and um, not only Brazilians, but also um, others who, uh, you know, for example, and I'll, I'll mention this lastly, Giuseppe Piani, who was a uh, an Italian-born priest in Brazil, becomes Baptist in Brazil, 
comes to the U.S. to 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 college, goes back to Brazil, then comes back to to seminary, then becomes a very influential figure among Italian immigrants in the U.S. and he changes his name to 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 Joseph Plainfield, and and uh, he's really trying to convert uh, the the Italians not only to Christianity. Of course, they were Catholics, but he didn't consider that to be uh, Christian because of the the, the rabid anti-Catholicism that that was uh, was characteristic of of uh, of, of Southern Baptist and Brazilian Baptist, but also to to Southern culture. Um, I mean, Francisco Fulgencio Soren, the the longtime pastor of uh, of the first Brazilian Baptist Church in Rio, who was a pupil of uh, or a student of uh, of William Buck Bagby and pastored politicians and others in this church that was very influential. Studied at Southern Seminary, and uh, when the Brazilian Baptist Convention began, he he didn't want Brazilians to even be able. To be, you know, to be part of it, he wanted to be a missionary-only enterprise. So they they picked the, you know, the, the the leaders. Of course, they had to be white because they went were sent to study in the segregated South, um, and um, and they sent. Of course, sometimes that backfired, right? So some folks like Gilberto Freire, who's a huge influential intellectual in Brazilian history, who went to Baylor as a, a, a you know, under missionary influence, ends up leaving the denomination, and others who come back in the radical movement are also studying the U.S., but in terms of the intent of missionaries, they want to send, uh, you know, folks who they want to shape into the Southern Baptist mentality to experience the South uh, physically, to go back to Brazil and, and be, you know, uh, uh, a uh, form of reproduction of... Um, of uh, what the missionaries stand for and represent. So there is a very strong connection to the dispositions and the spirit that come with the Confederate exiles uh, and then is systematized in terms of missionary strategy by uh, the the Southern um, missionaries who go to Brazil. Uh, And not all Southern Baptist missionaries are native of the South, um, but... Most of them were, and uh, and even those who were not, were pressured to conform to a particular way of doing and a particular belief system. Yeah. Well, thank you for that answer, Ajrao. Um, and to kind of follow up to that, I wanted to ask here is that you mentioned how the Southern Baptist missionary work in Brazil relied heavily um, on this ideological and structural control of of the Brazilian Baptist Convention, you know, which was formed later in um, in the early 20th century. And, and the two things that, you know, um, the Southern Baptist missionaries um, kind of uh, control and um, kind of uh, maintain power was through um, this implementation of Baptist publishing and education. You know, of course, as you, I think you mentioned also, the the important role of church planning um i think that was another aspect as well but um aside from that um what really grabbed my attention was this aspect of publishing and education and i remember um also some of a lot of your archival work uh focused on the publishing that came out from at this time as well and we see schools uh seminaries being um erect 
Um, I was wondering if you can briefly elaborate um, on these roles of these two mechanisms, publishing and education, how, how these um, uh, Southern Baptist missionaries utilize them uh, in their missionary work in Brazil. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, publishing was, many missionaries would say that publishing was as important as evangelism. Yeah. Um, and the importance of publish was, publishing was, to a great extent, to, for missionaries anyway, was to form a particular f form of mentality that included building and maintaining a denominational spirit and denominational unity. Although the, the Jornal Batista, for example, uh, is the major, to this day, is the beginning in, in the early 1900s, and to this day is the major Brazilian publication. But missionaries begin local publications early on. They, 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 they begin a national publication. And that does, again, two things. It, it maintains a sense of unity, especially if you're small in an you know, overwhelmingly Catholic country, uh, but you are spread around the country. That one publication gives a sense, gave a sense of unity. Um, it was also a mechanism by which missionaries could have some control of the message, what it meant to be Baptist. And, but also those, those uh, periodicals, the, the nationally represented periodicals, um, also were newspapers. You have then the interpretation of what was happening in the world um, just there. Um, and, um, and, and there are many interesting um, elements. Uh, that, that is one uh, now, so the history of the U.S. is then kind of framed a particular way. The place of the U.S. in the world display is framed in a particular way. Uh, the history of the southern U.S. is romanticized. Um, and that, that is in terms of periodicals. And then the books that are published are often translations of, uh, of, of, of particular theologies uh, that were developed by Southern Baptists. Um, that then um, it translated into Portuguese and used in the training of the of the, the the pastors. As a matter of fact, again, how continuous this is to this day, many, if not most, uh, pastoral ordination committees in, for Brazilian Baptists use Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, uh, who is a, a you know a conservative theologian. Uh, as um, as kind of the the book that you need to study, uh, so that um, so that you can kind of you know pass the examination. Uh, so that the trend continues of uh, considering uh, good theology translated theology, um, and um, and I mean there are of course exceptions, but in general, if you go to the seminaries, the, the, look at the syllabi, and look at what the, they're mostly published uh, as by by uh, Baptist publishing houses. Um, in, in, you know, they publish they are published translations of particular brands of conservative Southern uh, theological articulations. Uh, so, published does two things, right? It it uh, it helps the ministers and laity to maintain this uh, sense of denominational unity, um, and the periodicals also help form a particular worldview by its interpretation of history and politics. 
uh, but then it also, via the publication of books that I use to train pastors, um, exposed the leadership to a particular way of thinking that is decontextualized, right? It, it, it's, uh, it's intentionally, uh, is intentionally imported. And I, and I, as I, and I mentioned in the book and, and, and I show uh, the, the Brazilian Baptist leaders, prominent Brazilian Baptist leaders saying we need to learn English, you know, because we need to have access to this fountain of knowledge, um, right? Which is, you know, Southern Baptist books that are produced there, you know, then we can read here. Um, and, and again, there are exceptions to this, and I show some of them in terms of some of the reactions against uh, missionary domination. But by and large, that uh, is not only the case, but then as I show in the introduction that I kind of show contemporary connections, it, it by and large remains there. Uh, it was, was a very successful enterprise. Yeah. Well, thank you for that thorough answer. And in the following chapter, chapter three, we see how Southern Baptist missionaries in Brazil continued uh, to remain in power, uh, uh, infusing this spirit of the Jim Crow South into the denominational institutions they helped to create. And it would be in the 1920s, 1930s that we finally see change and resistance against this white supremacy in Brazilian Baptist life. Um, through what was known as the radical movement um, that began to take shape in the state of Pernambuco. Um, here, I would like to ask you, um, Joel, if you mind touching upon some of the key aspects of the radical movement. I know, you know, it can take a whole podcast to just talk about this, but if you can just highlight um, some of uh, the main key aspects of this movement and um, you know, in the midst of this movement, we see at NIU um, dealing it a lot about um, the name D.L. Hamilton, um, this figure. If you can also briefly touch upon his significance and the role he played in the radical movement, I think it would be helpful in kind of uh, understanding uh, this time period and, and this movement as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. And so the, the radical movement is really a... Um, a watershed movement in the history of Christianity in northeastern Brazil, but also in the whole country. And here, I just want to to uh, give a shout out to Erica Helgen, whose book "Religious Conflict in Brazil" by Yale University Press uh, doesn't treats the radical movement excellently, and she also frames that as a major watershed uh, a movement in the in the history of a. Uh, of uh, Christianity in Brazil, but um, but anyway, what it, it is it is a, a reaction against administrative domination of missionaries. Locals have been hearing by the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. Locals have been hearing that there is going to be a power shift from missionaries to locals now for forty years, um, and um, and they're they're getting patient. Um, and so when they ask to administer certain funds for the evangelization for, of, um, of, of Brazilians, so they want funds to disseminate the very theology that Southern Baptists have taught them, right? They do not, and this is important to, to mention that 
that is very little theological digression here. That is a want for more administrative freedom. Um, and um, and a, a group of leaders kind of organizes churches in Pernambuco um, and um, in other places in the Northeast and they kind of challenge the missionaries to shift uh, the, 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 the power structures of the denomination. Uh, important, importantly, those leaders were all trained in the U.S., um, either Baylor University or Southern Baptist um, um, Seminary. Um, and um, so they, they do know English very well. Um, they are very well connected. Um, they, because they were sent on scholarships, they were their capabilities to lead the denomination had been recognized by the missionaries. As a matter of fact, I look at how the missionaries, some missionaries, talk about them before they revolt. You know, and they are like, "This is going to be the greatest preacher in the history of Brazil." Now, this other one is like a capable leader. He could be leader in any Southern Baptist Convention committee. You know, and uh, you know they really praise them, and then they revolt and they become Judas and you know, heretics and all kinds of things, which, I mean, it happens, right? Uh, uh, but but you see that. I was fortunate enough to be able to find sources that have the before and after impression uh, of, that the missionaries have of them. But they are uh, U.S. trained, and they use that to say when the missionaries kind of, uh, you know, uh, resist giving them power, uh, they start to say, okay, this is this is how they do things in the U.S., and this is what they think. Right, um, so um, it's a it's a very interesting, um, and then some of uh, that that is also examples that I show in the in the book that uh, that some folks then translate um, some uh, missionary writings that were intended to be read by a U.S. audience into Portuguese that creates some tension, um, you know, because again, missionaries living in two worlds, they are pressured to cater to two different um, two different audiences one that expect them in a way to be uh, you know uh, to show the dispositions of the south in general um, and um, and another uh, that uh, that if they do show it here we're going to react right uh, and uh, so there is a story that I that I mentioned uh, for example of a missionary that writes to uh, in English to the U.S. Uh, audience in missionary publications where he says, you know, yeah, um, T.B. Ray, who was a missionary in the past, says that the, the ratio or that the dominant race in Brazil is Caucasian. But if you go to the churches of Rio de Janeiro, you'll see the crudest kind of Negro, you know, as their members, right? So he's lamenting back saying, okay, I thought that whites ruled here but it's kind of not like that. Now, that article is picked up and translated into Portuguese, and there's a revolt. Uh, this happens in the 20s. You know, faculty and a certain seminary, at the seminary in the South and students say, if the guy doesn't leave, now that's it. So all, there's lots happening. Here, you mentioned D.L. Hamilton, who was a favorite of the locals. He is being pressured because he already didn't, he had been very successful in, uh, in education in the, in the U.S., 
He goes to Brazil. He's really not impressed by his fellow missionaries. He helps reveal a sexual scandal uh, that uh, between a missionary and, and uh, in the in, in, in the seminary and, and local student. Uh, I mean, missionaries don't like that. I mean, that kind of uh, approach. As a matter of fact, him and Rosalie Appleby, the two missionaries that I saw there, resist the, the the missionary establishment. End up either being kicked out or forced to retire early. Um, but the locals really like him. They saw in, you know, the injustice done to him. He helped the radical movement as well. So you see this, really, this, um, this movement um, trying to disrupt or change the, the leadership. Um, and again, missionaries resist. They are kicked out of churches. New, a new seminary and new publication, rival publications are, are, are established. But then eventually the Great Depression comes um, and missionaries who initially thought they could starve out the radicals, just wait it out. Let's stop giving them money. They're going to come back. Now they don't have money anymore. Um, so a lot of missionaries who were in furlough cannot come back. So, you know, uh, the mission becomes understaffed uh, and then locals also take advantage of that. And they established what is called uh, the New Basis of Cooperation, which is a new document that allows Brazilians to lead denominations, that uh, changes the ratio in the administrative boards of the convention. There had to be a majority of missionaries. They upset. And, they be, and, and then you have the first presidents and deans and, and, and directors of seminaries. Uh, you have uh, Brazilians administering a little more of the funds sent by the the foreign mission board to the missions and on. So there is a shift that happens there, uh, but is led by the missionaries who are in the U.S. Local missionaries really kind of do not like that a lot, but is also in the context of the Great Depression. Missionaries who thought they could just stop giving money to the locals and just wait it out. They can't do that because there's no money to, 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 you know, to be had. They need the cooperation. And that happens. Um, but then soon after that, um, they, uh, they, their um, sort of uh, frustration with Brazilian leadership comes to light. Exactly. And thank you for that answer. And as you just mentioned, um, that frustration is, again, well portrayed in the following uh, fourth chapter, which you titled Struggling for Holy Power, Missionary Strategies for Maintaining Leadership. And um, in continuation to what you've uh, just uh, explained in detail, we see the developments in Brazilian Baptist history post-radical uh, movement period from 1938 to up to, I think, 1982. Um, there's a lot uh, that you cover in this chapter, but what I thought was uh, important in, again, I like how you ended in that note, um, how, you know, in a way, um, it, this chapter emphasizes how Southern Baptist missionaries utilize different approaches to, in a way, secure the continuation of the Brazilian Baptist ideological dependence on the Southern Baptist Convention. And one of the which was through reestablishing um, institutional dominance. I think that that was what you highlight a lot here. Um, uh, and here you bring to the limelight um, two main seminaries, uh, the North Brazil Baptist Theological Seminary and the South, Southern ba Brazil Baptist Theological Seminary. 
and you you bring these two figures along uh, to Southern Baptist missionaries, John Main and A.R. Crabtree, who we see um, are trying to you know uh, continue the, this power, that, and we see this power struggle as well. Um, and I was wondering, Joao, if you can say a little more on what was happening within these two seminaries, and I think we also see uh, similarities taking place uh, with the well, what John Main was doing and what A.R. Crabtree was doing in these two seminaries. And if you can, if we please feel free to mention uh, kind of this uh, similarities that they were trying to do within these two uh, institutions as well. Yeah, thank you. That's a wonderful question. Yeah, so I would pick up on Crabtree to, uh, to first and to, as a way to try to address the, the, the whole question, but Crabtree is one of the official historians of, of um, Brazilian Baptist. And I do think uh, that, uh, you know, that's a, there is another connection with, with Princeton Seminary. Memory might fail me here, but I think he has a degree from there as well. So he's highly educated, a very capable historian. Sometimes he maybe intentionally mistranslates stuff. This is another thing when you, when you see missionaries translating primary sources who were written originally in English, sometimes they take lots of interpretive creativity, you know. Um, but, um, but again, it's interesting because he writes in the 1930s. And again, this illustrates the idea of official history and then look behind the curtain, see if they match kind of disposition. He writes the, his volume of, the, of a two-volume book is a local in him that commissioned by the, the convention to write the official history all the way up to the, to the late 30s. And he begins praising the history of Baptists in Brazil. At the same time, he is exchanging correspondence with this uh, you know, uh, person in Brazil, this man in Brazil who want, had been a missionary. Now he wants to go in Brazil. He wants to go back to be a missionary in Brazil again. And then Krebti tells him, do not come. If I knew it, I wouldn't have returned. You know, things here are extremely different. Brazilians are in the leadership. You're not going to like it. I think I shouldn't have come back. That's basically, and of again, I am myself taking uh, in, in, uh, liberty here because I'm I'm remembering a letter or a, a few letters, and you have others that you see at the same time they are writing. Yeah, God is leading here. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is ahead of this. Brazilians are going to grow. You look at their correspondence with others here. They say, I don't like it. They're trying to, you know, this, I mean, this is not happening. I shouldn't have come, you know, the, 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 and again, you, you see the frustration there at the same time, because this is soon after that is the transition to power of Brazilians. Um, but um, at the same time, these, these are well-trained, uh, very, um, very politically savvy folks, folks like John, John Mean and uh, A.R. Crabtree, so they do navigate things until they're able to, you know, to uh, to get it back. I, I should mention that if you go to South Brazil Baptist Theological Seminary, there is a building named after Crabtree. Uh, if you go to the Northern uh, Seminary, the chapel is named under. I was just there uh, not too long ago. Uh, the 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 chapel is named after John Means' son, David Mean, who becomes one of the most influential denominational leaders 
um, in, um, in, in, in Brazilian Baptist history, uh, but in the history of uh, evangelicalism in, the, in Brazil more generally as well. So um, uh, one quick story. If you go to the North Brazil Baptist Theological Seminary, you see the replica of the tombstone of some missionaries who have died in Brazil. Um, and again, the buildings are named after them. All of that to say, and I want to, I think it's important to emphasize how extremely um, uh, successful that enterprise was, right? The, the enterprise of framing the Southern Baptist Convention and what it represents as, uh, you know, a, um, a non-problematically um, uh, true manifestation of, of the gospel on earth. I do see that really clearly. Now, um, what part of what's happening here is folks like Mean and Crabtree are unhappy with the transition into Brazilian hands. They start working, uh, you know, uh, under the under the um, the the kind of under the curtains uh, or behind the curtains, I should say, uh, to to make the situation change. There are two things they need to do to do that. They need to first of all convince the foreign mission board, board that they were wrong in siding with the locals and not with the missionaries. Um, and um, to kind of show that Brazilians really can't administer these organizations. Um, and sometimes they have help from, from local leaders. Again, to the, the Djalma Cunha, who becomes the the, 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 the Director, that's the, the name for, for that they will give to the president, the highest administrative uh, position of, of uh, southern of the, the seminary in the south. Crabtree is, is kind of under him, and then he wants to go to southern seminary to study. In, and so Crabtree is concerned, so how do we sell this? The local churches are not going to like. said, no, we just use denominational periodicals to appease them, Right? Because Dijama wanted to go and get full salary while he was here in the U.S. So the only way for him to do that is if you have, you know, if he maintains the position and you don't get, an, I know, another position in his place, but Cabtree got his salary from the mission, not from the seminary. And also they kind of partner in, in making it happen, and they do make it happen. But then Crabtree already becomes the leader, you know, uh, for all intents and purposes while Dejama is here. Then it's just an easy transition. And the and, and, and in the in the north where, where John Mean is, um, you have now these radical leaders really wanting to push missionaries out more aggressively than in the south. Um, and um, and that doesn't bode well with the with the uh, the denomination, with the, the missionary agency, a Brazilian whose rights are not being, former radical Brazilian whose rights are not being uh, uh, met uh, by the seminary leadership threatens to sue the seminary. They end up bribing him uh, to not do it. You know, it's a, uh, but again, all of that is happening in the, so the, and other things get the missionary board in, in now back in line with missionaries with trying to get power here. At the same time, missionaries know that the growth of the denomination itself 
will diminish the proportion of missionaries in relations to locals. And they want to, and they, they, they also look at what's happening with the Presbyterians and Methodists. Missionaries are always also struggling there. Uh, and they figure out that it is that the center of power and influence is, again, publication and seminaries. Um, so if, we, if missionaries know that if they can control ideological formation, they will have a greater impact in all other aspects of denominational life. So they concentrate their power and their, and their uh, uh, interest in institutions of theological formations and publication houses. Um, and they really don't want to go to the interior. They want to stay in, in, in major uh, you know, uh, urban centers forming the future leadership. And that's what they do. Uh, and and by by uh, by the time I finish the narrative, which is when the official hundred years of uh, of Brazilian Baptist was celebrated in 1982, um, that is still is still in the north. The son of John Mean, who you mentioned, David Mean, is still the 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 principal there of that seminary, and that is, there are there are missionaries still in, in these faculties. Um, that they are they are very much influential, um, and and, uh, and again I stop there. Uh, that that uh, the chapter with uh, at the end I mentioned a uh, hymn that was written in celebration of the hundred years, in which the the missionaries are praised as uh, as uh, as heroes of you know the. Uh, the heroes who have sacrificed their lives for the good of the Brazilian Baptist Convention, certainly some of these missionaries sacrificed things. Certainly they saw themselves as heroes. Um, but uh, my, my attempt is to show that it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Thank you, Raul, uh, for that answer. Um, as we head towards the end of your book, um, Again, right before going into the fifth chapter, the, the last main chapter, towards the end of the fourth, uh, we also witness active missionary work by the Brazilian Baptist Convention. Um, as the World Missionary Board of the Brazilian Baptist Convention sent many missionaries to various nations. And um, here, this is not more of a question, but just I wanted our read, uh, listeners to know that it is interesting how um, they would spread Southern Baptist orthodoxy. Uh, I think that's how you put it abroad and be described as, quote, faithful and proud imitators of English and United States missionaries, um, end quote. Um, and um, again, uh, even though our conversations uh, touch upon some important aspects, there are so many rich details within this book that, that I hope our listeners can revisit by reading the book itself as well. Um, uh, and even though the Brazilian Baptist Conventions, you know, they grew significantly after now World War II, um, it would be no match um, to the rapidly growing Pentecostalism, the presence of Pentecostalism in Brazil. In Chapter 5, we see uh, the influence of Pentecostalism on the Brazilian Baptist Convention, especially through the work of, you know, Appleby, uh, Rosalie Mills Appleby. And I think um, it'll be wonderful if we can hear more about this aspect. Um, Joao, could you tell us um, 
uh, a little more about Appleby and, and some of the controversy that surfaced during this time uh, in the midst of this uh, growing Pentecostalism. And how did the newly formed, we see a newly formed uh, kind of a schism taking place, this newly formed National Baptist Convention differ uh, from the Brazilian Baptist Convention itself? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the, this, it, it is an interesting dynamic. What's, what's, happened, what's happening in Brazil here, of course, Pentecostalism, like you said, is growing. Um, it... Um, it influences um, many different forms of, uh, of of Christianity in Brazil. It's really Brazil today. At least last time I checked, because it's changing so so rapidly. Uh, it was both the country with the largest number of Catholics in the world and the country with the largest numbers of Pente number of Pentecostals in the world. And of course. Depending on how you understand these categories, sometimes they overlap. But um, what's happening in terms of Appleby is very interesting. And, and there, the, the, she is a widow. Um, and uh, it is, I suspect, partially because of that, that she becomes so influential. And she's able, she has the freedom, you know, to... Uh, to uh, to, to do many things that she might not have had um, had her uh, husband been around. But she's a, a missionary in the state of Minas Gerais. And she's part of the Keswick movement, you know, the movement for uh, you know, the endowment of power for service. And um, she gets very close to being um, charismatic. She has a um, uh, this movement in Brazil. It's uh, it's a become it's a radio show, but it's also other things that she calls a spiritual awakening. And two leaders in in Brazil, José Rego do Nascimento and Enéas Tonini, um, become kind of um, her mentees. And then in the in the late fifties, in uh, nineteen fifty eight. I mean, I'm sorry, the, the, the late 1950s, 1958, um, José Rego do Nascimento has a, a, uh, an event at the South Sem Southern Seminary, the seminary in the south of Brazil, um, where he is baptized in the Holy Spirit. He speaks in tongues, prophesy, you know, and the students love it. Um, but the churches don't. And, um, and that is a reason why. Well, there are many reasons why, but there is one particular historical reason that is teased out, is that in um, the, the early 20th century, the first, dec second decade of the 20th century, um, and again, we can, uh, there are so many connections here, it is a, a, in, in a church pastored by a Swedish-born Southern Baptist missionary, uh, there is a controversy there that the missionary is back in the U.S. And then two Swedish-born immigrants who come from Chicago, um, you know, where they had been influenced by Baptist William Durham, who had been influenced by the Azusa Street movement, right? They go to, to um, Pará, where the church is, and they try to convert that church to Pentecostalism. End up having a schism. They end up being kicked out. 
Uh, and then it's, it's from that that the Brazilian Assemblies of God, who is today the largest denomination in the country, is formed. So that happening really uh, you know, clicks the memory of savvy Brazilian leaders you know, to say the heretics are trying to do this again. Right, um, that there is a uh, lot of animosity at that at that point, and that I mean, uh, Tonini comes along, uh, you know, Rosalie and and, and Jose Rego do Nascimento and others, um, and again, and it, there's lots of she then is is accused of being mentally ill by some of her missionary colleagues, ends up coming to the U.S. and then while in the U.S. she goes to the First Baptist Church of Dallas, um, where former President Trump. Has uh, been a uh, a, uh, a guest of honor many times, um, and um, Crisol, who was at one point Billy Graham's pastor. So you see, now there are many connections that could be teased out here. She, you know, uh, she is there, uh, and uh, she's looking at ways in which you can graft this empowerment of the spirit into Baptist heritage itself, and Criswell had a time in which he seemed friendly towards Keswick uh, and our interpretations. And here I just want to point out to, to Douglas, my, my, my advisor, Douglas Weaver's book, Baptists um, and the Holy Spirit, I think is a, is a, uh, a very large but very you know, uh, pleasant book to read that, uh, that he, he traces out these connections, right? That this kind of like a forgotten story, there is a lot of Pentecostal charismatic Baptist inst- interactions that date back from long, long time. And, and Doug teases those out masterfully in that book. And Rosalie is part of that. He actually also mentions Rosalie Appleby there. Uh, she, um, she, she goes back to Brazil and presents, you know, José Rego and Antonini with this narrative, which they use, you know, they say, listen, and, and the Brazilian Baptist Convention now creates a commission. There are lots of churches that become charismatic. They want to kick him out. And Tonini, you know, uh, who had already some influence in the denomination and others, you know, are defending. Uh, and some of this is public, right? It's being published in local periodicals saying, no, look, look at Baptist, uh, Baptist heritage, and then he goes naming every major Baptist, you know, uh, uh, leader, pastor, and theologian that speaks about the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, "This is what it is." The the uh, the Southern Baptist Convention ends up adding an article to their Confessions of Faith that he interprets as, you know, look, you know, we can do this. That is not enough there to keep us from being, you know, uh, the, from the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But he loses that battle. Uh, and they end up forming the National Baptist Convention after some, a few churches are kicked out of the denomination. Uh, but then the influence uh, remains again to this day. The church that becomes charismatic under the leadership of José Rego do Nascimento becomes the leading force in um, Brazilian gospel, the Brazilian gospel industry. And it goes beyond Baptists. Uh, you know, and as a matter of fact, they have franchises in the U.S., of that church too, so um, can I mean that there are you know uh, uh, many transnational connections here as well. So that's a, a, a part of the story, but the connections are multi-directional, and they and, and they and they keep on giving in many different ways. Thank you for that answer. Um, before my final question to you, Andrew, 
there are, um, I, I would still like to ask you um, uh, this following question, and that is, what do you hope um, scholars working on, you know, Baptist studies, even world Christianity, take from your book? Um, and what new avenues uh, for research would you say your book leaves? And just to uh, name uh, on the top of my head is this transnational, these connections you've already repeatedly uh, pointed out. I think that's already a, a new avenue for research. But again, um, I wanted to invite you to share some of your thoughts on this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so a couple of things. And, and, and one thing that in terms of both Baptist studies, of, of, of uh, history of uh, U.S. Christianity and world Christianity, I think that those disciplines could benefit from being in stronger dialogue with each other. Sometimes, they, sometimes not always, but sometimes they are in kind of separate lanes. I think blurring the lines would, uh, would help, again, trace transnational geopolitical connections uh, would help, um, you know, um, also understanding better um, the, the, the breadth and the scope of the influence of U.S. Christianities um, in, in, in the global south. Um, and, um, and, and, yeah, and, and, qual and qualifying give us greater understanding of... Um, um, models that work and didn't work in terms of uh, of, of missionary engagement, um, and have a better sense of the depth of um, you know coloniality um, and colonialism. I think that uh, they, you know sometimes um, that is understood as um, as the taking of territory and as uh, physical violence, but often it shows itself as epistemic and symbolic violence rather than otherwise. And then how, what do we do with local agency, right? Uh, it, it seems that in some circles, um, local agency is a conversation stopper, right? That is local agency, so that's, okay. Well, I mean, how, how far does it go? Because sometimes local agency is used to, uh, to uh, strengthen and develop the very dispositions introduced by white Southern missionaries in the case of the group that I'm studying, but Westerners in general, they are not necessarily properly contextualized, even by locals, uh, and not necessarily done for the sake of the betterment of local communities. Um, but is rather uh, done for the sake of the furthering of an imagination that was uh, established via thoroughly colonial dispositions that locals incorporate. Um, so, um, so I, I think that in terms of, uh, of especially world Christianity scholarship, um, and there's, of course, excellent work done in, 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 in much of this, but I think that an additional... Um, kind of an emphasis on the conceptual understanding of the limits of local agency um, can, can be helpful. I do not flesh it out here, but it's always in the back of my mind. Uh, you know, um, I do understand that when especially white scholars, white Western scholars are studying these local Christianities, that is a political uh, uh, existential uh, you know, uh, the dispositions that uh, that it become it may, is in, in cultural disposition that it makes hard for them to criticize local agency, right? It sounds a certain way. 
uh, but uh, but but nevertheless, I think that uh, I think that uh, that will be one conceptual um, um, thing that I hope my book kind of raises. Although I, then I don't flesh this out explicitly, is um, you know in 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 cases in which uh, the uh, colonial dispositions of missionaries have been well implemented according to their intent. Um, do we celebrate or mourn local agency? Um, I don't, you know, that, that, that would be a question that I'll be interested in from a conceptual level. And in terms of research, uh, I mean, I, it's a book that traces a hundred years, you know, um, and, and as, as those books go, there are many gaps there. Um, and, and, uh, you know, so I would be, again, like you mentioned, the transnational connections are, are interested uh, but I, but but uh, for me, um, I would like to in the future visit ways in which, uh, you know, the Baptists in Brazil, or other Christians in Brazil, or in Latin America in general, come to the U.S. in influence settings here. Right, the so influence on the other the other way uh, would be interesting to for me to look at, which is. You know, uh, something that I'll be interested in, and I—I I mean, I, I wouldn't—I I wouldn't mind seeing a, a good biography of Appleby, uh, you know, for example, uh, or, or others. I mean, there, there, there's much to tease out there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ra, uh, for your time today to discuss in thorough um, about your book. And the last and final question I would like to ask you is. Do you mind sharing with us about your current or future projects and what you hope to work on um, as well? Well, thank you for that. Yeah, so currently I am, well, we have a first draft already submitted. I hope that in the future, near future, we'll be able to celebrate, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, um, the, the publication. But, but there's still some writing that needs to be done in development of, uh, of this manuscript that I co-wrote or am co-writing with Michael Parsons, who is uh, actually a New Testament scholar at Baylor. Um, and it is um, a uh, on a Brazilian immigrant that she's the daughter of uh, the first Brazilian Baptist pastor, Brazilian-born uh, Baptist pastor who comes to the U.S. And, um, and, and is a victim of sexual violence here. Um, in a Baptist university um, and creates a, a scandal, uh, you know, a, a local scandal that, you know, has some transnational, um, you know, uh, influence and, 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 um, and impact as well. So, uh, so we trace that, we're tracing that history and, and that history came to surface um, because of, um, of investigations in statues that, you know, that are placed in this particular university. Uh, one of the statues is the statue of the president who tries who tries to blame her for, you know, uh, for the um, uh, it kind of it, it it tries to kind of defend the culprit of the rape rather than the victim. Um, so out of that um, kind of uh, uh, understanding of you know these heroes that institutions. Uh, celebrate kind of tease out the history and that uh, and so I, I I go a little further on the history of missions to Brazil and also on the importance of former Catholic priests to the Protestant cause 
uh, in Brazil in general. This the, her father happened to have been a uh, former priest who becomes uh, a, f- a very public figure and uses newspapers and the media of the time uh, to kind of uh, further, you know, uh, the, the the Protestant cause to which he becomes, um, um, you know, uh, one of the leaders in, in, in Brazil. And this is, although he's Baptist, um, the, his writings are used by Presbyterian, Methodists, uh, you know, and, and other Missionaries are there, so I, I trace this. The, we trace the history of, of of that particular history, and then move to from Brazil to the U.S. with her when she's brought. When her father dies, she's brought by missionaries on a boat, lands in the U.S. and begins her journey here. So we begin in Brazil, follow her journey across and um, uh, uh, the ocean, and look at the U.S. And at the end, we kind of make an assessment of how. Um, you know, uh, institutions, when they tell their story of institutional goodness, uh, intentionally try to forget a certain series of, um, of stories that, um, that have been, uh, you know, that could have been detrimental to the story they want to tell to themselves and others. Um, so we, 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 we look at that broader um, um, dynamic via this particular lens. Um, so that is kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in final stages. And I hope to explore um, the, the, uh, the uh, history of former priests, uh, you know, in Latin America who become Protestant and then what kind of role do they have, <clears throat> you know, in, if they, who are the commonalities uh, and, and roles do they have in transnational, um, you know, a kind of the, the development of Protestantism in, in Latin America, but in transnational dynamics as well. Uh, and I've become more and more interested in in uh, in getting miss you know uh, in in dialoguing with missiology with works performed by missiologists, which I I I still need to map out how how that is going to happen specifically, but the, my interest and curiosity of actually uh, there, especially as missiologists now continue to struggle with this issue of coloniality and decoloniality, you know, and and uh, how do we how do we uh, grapple with that and with these uh, complicated histories of missionary engagement with the Global South? Yeah. Wow, Joao. Those sounds like uh, great projects, and I l- really look forward to reading more of your works as well. And again, once again, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate the invitation. Glad to talk. Yeah. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored the global mission of the Jim Crow South, Southern Baptist missionaries and the shaping of Latin American evangelicalism written by Josh Havis and published by Mercer University Press in 2022. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.